0: Open your Bibles again to John chapter 6, and we are slowly making our way through this incredibly rich gospel of the Apostle John filled with great truth. As just a way of connection, we have just looked at the feeding of the 5,000 when Jesus had taken the little lunch from a small boy, a few loaves and a couple of fish, and multiplied it to feed tens of thousands of people. The crowd was so amazed by what Jesus did that they desired to take him by force and to make him king, and Jesus has dispatched the crowd and sent the disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and as we looked at last week, we had a big storm that came up and Jesus walked on the water and created another miracle in their midst by walking undisturbed on the water, and instantly they were at their destination as soon as Jesus entered into the boat. Jesus has again affirmed his deity, which is John's major objective in his gospel. His desire is to make it unmistakably clear to all of his readers that Jesus actually is the Son of God, as promised from the Father at the beginning of the covenant that he made with Abraham. As born-again believers in Jesus Christ, you and I should have no doubt about who he really is. But you know, that is not the case In the world, not everybody is convinced that Jesus actually is who we believe him to be. Some believe that he was a prophet, others believe that he was a Jewish preacher, that he was a religious leader, that he was a highly influential person. But they come short of acknowledging that Jesus is actually God as he claimed to be as he dealt with the Pharisees who were outraged at his healing of the crippled man on the Sabbath day. They will not ascribe to him the description that he is God, the Creator, the one and only Son of God, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Lord and the Savior. Imagine the shock and the horror when the Scripture is fulfilled by these that have willingly and blatantly denied who Jesus is on that day when every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You know, we take for granted this privilege that you and I have in knowing who He is, and on this side of judgment and eternity, being being able to bow our hearts on our knees before Him to acknowledge the great God that He is. So in our passage today, we pick up the next day after the feeding of the 5,000, And late in the evening, in the early hours of the next morning, when they encountered the storm on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus' calming of the storm as he got into the boat, this is the following day, and this day will take us all the way to the end of chapter 6. And it is in this passage that we find this incredibly important discourse on Jesus' self-affirmation that he is the bread of life. My intent was to get through verse 40 today, but we're not going to get there. We're going to stop at verse 34, and there are several challenging things in here that make stopping and starting a little bit difficult for continuity of thought. But we're going to look at verses 23, or excuse me, 22 through 34 today, and we're going to look at this in two sections, and because of the length of this passage, we'll read these sections separately. So let's look together in John 6, 22 through 25. The next day... The crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So very quickly, three points as a way of transitioning from the feeding of the 5,000 and the miracle that took place on the water. And we see, first of all, that the crowd has gathered. They have regathered after the disbursement that took place after the feeding of the 5,000. And so John includes this information as a transition to explain not only how Jesus got to the other side, but how the crowd also got there with him. So Jesus and his disciples have gone to the other side of the sea, which is now the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And John takes us back to the east side where Jesus and the disciples were on the preceding day for just a moment to get us caught up in this narrative. So this transition is to emphasize the two miracles that Jesus performed the feeding of the 5,000, and then the one that the crowd would not be aware of, him walking on the water. And so he highlights that the crowd knows that there's something strange that has taken place, even though they themselves did not witness it. So the first thing we see is that Jesus has disappeared from the crowd. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but his disciples had gone away alone. And so after the feeding of the 5,000, the mass of people, estimates are probably in the neighborhood of fifteen to 25,000, and after they have gone away, they knew that there was only one boat on the side of the Sea of Galilee where they were, and that was the boat that Jesus, excuse me, that the disciples departed in, and they knew that Jesus had not departed in, and as Matthew and Mark would tell us, and their accounts of this of this narrative, Jesus had gone into the mountain alone to pray. So this means that the crowd that Jesus fed came and went by foot, and they knew there was only one way to get transported to the other side of the sea. And that was going to be by boat. It's about seven miles across. It's much, much longer to go around. And certainly most people would not venture to do that in the evening or in the darkness. They would wait until the following morning. And as the crowd did when they saw a lot of boats now arriving, they themselves traveled to the other other side of the sea by boat. So the crowd saw the disciples leave in that boat without Jesus. And Jesus is nowhere to be found. And so now they're going to search for Jesus. Now remember... John does not give us the account of all the miracles that Jesus performed while he was in Galilee, but it 's referenced in john six chapter two we'll look at or john six verse two we 'll look at that again in just a few moments. So they begin a search for Jesus because of the miracles that they saw and because of the feeding that they had just enjoyed verse twenty three there came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord. Had given thanks, so this feeding of the masses has resulted in even more people coming to this area now because they undoubtedly have heard about what has taken place, and they want to see something they want to be a part of the show, they want to be wowed, and so they have now traveled to see what is taking place in hopes that they can catch a glimpse of Jesus, the miracle worker, doing something else. Now, it's very subtle here, but John emphasizes this feeding of the 5,000 by simply saying the place where they ate and the Lord had given thanks. Now, if you talk about an understatement, that's an understatement. Jesus took these five loaves and two fish and just simply broke and broke and broke and distributed and fed this mass of people until they were all full. And the disciples around and collected twelve baskets full. And John just said, this is where they ate and the Lord had given thanks. So Tiberias that is mentioned here is near the east side where the miracle took place. And so people are coming by boat to see Jesus because they've heard about this and they want to get a glimpse For themselves. So verse 24 continues. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So the boats have arrived, and they are now the transport for many of these people to get to the west side where Jesus and the disciples are now. So there's likely new people who are searching for him, as well as the others that have come back to see what Jesus is going to do next. Now, the third thing that we see is that the crowd that gathers is now greatly surprised that Jesus is already on the other side of the sea. Verse 25, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So they put two and two together. They remember that the disciples left in the boat by themselves. Jesus was not with them. It seems incalculable to them that Jesus had a quick and easy way to the other side of the sea, and yet here he is. They know that something strange has taken place. Not only did they see him feed this massive crowd with a little boy's lunch, but he has arrived on the other side without any discernible transportation, and teleportation had not been invented yet. There was no science fiction to give them any clue or any idea. They just knew that something happened and he is now on the other side. He had, to have arrived, he had to have arrived last night, but how did he get there? When did he show up? They're very curious, but they potentially will never know the answer to that question until long after his ascension when this narrative is retold by the disciples and the oral tradition just continues and they find out, oh, that's how he got there. To the other side. Now, this second section we're going to look at here begins in earnest the discourse that Jesus is going to give to the people as a result of the feeding of the 5,000. And so John is going to pair a very lengthy discourse with this miracle because he wants to explain again that Jesus actually is the Son of God. So we have a very lengthy section here, verses 26 through 34, and this is our second section. Follow along. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. So the second section we begin what will probably take two or three weeks to get through, and that is the true bread. Jesus is asked this question, when did you get here? And he completely ignores it. It's very common for him to do so because Jesus wants to get to the heart of the matter. He doesn't want to give in to trivial conversation. He doesn't want to debate. He doesn't want to explain. He wants to to tell these people what it is that they really need to hear and that is this. He came to bring redemption. He's always talking about how badly man needs to be redeemed, how he can provide it and what man needs to do in order to receive it. Okay, so we get to the true bread. Jesus has come to bring redemption. This is what he wants to talk about. He's talking about how badly man needs it, how he can provide it, and what man needs to do in order to receive it. So we're going to look at nine points that Jesus is going to make in this section of this discourse. The first one is this. Their desire is purely physical. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. As you remember, anytime Jesus says truly, truly, what he is saying is, What I am about to tell you is of incredible importance, and what I'm about to say to you is a solemn oath before the Lord, and it is the truth that you need to hear. Many of these people saw the miracles that Jesus had performed in his six month ministry in the area of Galilee. But they're not even interested in the significance of the miracles that He has been performing and the one that they just witnessed and took part of the day before in the feeding of the 5,000. They're only interested in the result of that miracle, and that is they got a free meal. They got their bellies full, and they didn't have to do anything for it, and they are very, very interested in the physical blessing that this man potentially has in store for them. Now, food has always been a necessity and the ability to get it is not always easy. You and I take that for granted. Living in America, and we waste more food in this country than the rest of the world could probably eat. That's how prosperous we are, that's how much we take for granted the blessing of the ability to get up and walk into your pantry or your refrigerator and get something to eat. Most of the world struggles to get food and to have food on a regular basis. Now, as a part of the curse of the fall, God said in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, because you have Listen to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. It is quite likely that many of the people who received the blessing of that meal struggled with the daily need for food. So when they could get a free meal by this Jesus character, who is this miracle worker, they were interested in seeing that replicated and being on the other side of what it was he was going to be able to provide. So their interest is really physical, but their need is spiritual, This is why Jesus cuts to the chase and gets to the heart of the matter and doesn't debate or explain or rationalize or justify anything with them. First part of verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. That word work there is actually the word labor, and it gives the idea of laboring for food that is simply going to to perish. Their interest is is in a physical, political kingdom of God that would address their physical needs, they have little interest or understanding of the spiritual nature of God's intent and in the promised Messiah. They are thinking back to the days of David when Israel was mighty and powerful and their boundaries were expanding and they had a plenty of everything. This is what they're thinking of. They want a social, political, military r- ruler, messiah who is going to come and take care of their physical needs. Just as Jesus distinguished Physical water from the water springing up to eternal life in chapter 4 when he encountered the Samaritan woman at the well. Here he is pointing his hearers away from the literal food to himself as the spiritual food, the bread of life. As important as physical food is for the nourishment of our physical bodies, it has, it all has a shelf life. Eventually, the food in our pantry, the food in our refrigerators is going to spoil if it's not eaten. It will need to be thrown away, it will not last forever. So there's this constant need for physical food. We need to eat several times a day and our physical bodies are always going to need more food. You talk about food at this time of the day. You start thinking about lunch, don't you? My breakfast was kind of light and I know where we're going and I know what's coming and I'm getting a little bit hungry. We have this constant, insatiable, unending need for food. And Jesus plays on that to tell these people that instead of putting all of their interest in obtaining physical food that will perish and you are always going to need more of, you are to pursue something that is going to meet your spiritual need and that is the true bread, the bread of life. Jesus is saying that they are to work for or pursue a spiritual food that will never spoil and will actually result in eternal life. Now, this is not an indication that we are to work for or that we are to earn our eternal life. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. But eternal life is what Jesus has come to provide in himself the bread of life. So it's a very clear distinction that Jesus is making here. And we're looking at this from hindsight, and they're not understanding what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus goes on to say, number three, that He can meet this need. Second part of verse 27. "...which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him the Father God has set his seal. So the spiritual food that these people need and the spiritual food that all people need is the food that only Jesus can provide. We can eat ourselves into oblivion and we'll never gain for ourselves eternal life. We can try to earn our salvation by living up to our own standards or the standards of some kind of religious belief or some moral code, but it will never result in eternal life. He has come to provide for our spiritual nourishment, not for the physical need for bread. The Son of Man, which is His favorite self-designation, has come to give spiritual food, which leads to eternal life. And he makes this promise under the authority of the Father, which is what he means when he says the seal of the Father. You remember this, that often in ancient times a document or a scroll or something was sent and would have a wax seal with the king's signet ring pressed into it. And it meant that the contents were authenticated and accurate and were binding onto whomever was going to read that. And this is what Jesus is saying. I am coming to give him eternal life. I am the bread of life, and I give this to you under the authority of the Father's seal. Fourthly, the people are thoroughly confused about what Jesus is actually saying. Verse 28. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Now, this is a very complicated phrase in the Greek language. Reading through all the different commentators and many of the scholars who have worked this out, they say it's very difficult to put this together in the English language in such a way that it makes the sense to us as Jesus would hear it said from these Jews who are speaking to him. The expression, the works of God, does not refer to the works that God performs, the healing, the creating, the restoration. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is we want to do the work that God requires for our eternal life. So built in within the Jewish sacrificial system and their rituals and their ceremony is this idea that we can do all of these things and therefore become acceptable There are many, many different religious groups and denominations that believe a similar thing, that if we do enough of the right thing, then we will become acceptable to God. Their question boils down to this. Tell us the work that God requires, and we will do that work. What do we have to do in order to earn eternal life? This is the question that Jesus was asked by the rich young ruler, Matthew 19.16. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Same thing we see in Luke chapter 10.26. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know, there is this inherent idea within man that certainly you and I can do enough, we can give enough, we can serve enough, so that we can earn eternal life. There must be something that I can do that will be sufficient and satisfying or appeasing God so that I can be blessed by Him and receive all the rewards that I know He really, really wants to give to me. An older author by the name of James Boyce wrote this in this regard. He says, The human mind is always flattered when it is conscious of doing something for God. What is more, for his doings, man considers himself entitled to a reward. How pleased we should be, all be if we could only earn salvation. In that case, we would have succeeded in bringing God into the humbling position of being in debt to us, and we would love that. You see, we would feel really good about ourselves if we could do enough to earn our salvation. We wouldn't be dependent upon God. We wouldn't need to be constantly repenting before God. We would be able to achieve a certain standard of religious expression or moral lifestyle or good works so that the scales of our good outweigh the scale of our bad and God is therefore obligated to accept us. Well, guess what? It just doesn't work that way. We can't do enough in order to earn our salvation. God doesn't grade on a curve. You and I don't get to establish the standard. The standard for earning our salvation is very simply this, perfection. If you want to earn your salvation, be perfect. Well, the problem is we enter into this world imperfect. There's not a moment that goes by that we don't have a fleeting thought or a sinful attraction to something. We could never ever possibly be perfect. And so because of that, nobody could ever earn their salvation. God and God alone is perfect. And in order to fulfill His holy and righteous standard, you and I would also need to be perfect. And that's just not going to happen. Now, the fifth thing that we see in this discourse is that Jesus makes it clear what we have to do in order to do the works of God and that is very simply this. We must believe. We must believe in who He is. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. The only acceptable work In order to gain God's favor or reward is that of faith. We can't do it. We can't earn it. We certainly don't deserve it. But it simply boils down to faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Who He says He is and what He says He has accomplished in His life, His death, and His resurrection on our behalf, which our faith in is what enables us to have this great gift Of eternal life. You know, it really isn't very complicated what Jesus is saying, is it? You just have to believe. But I'll tell you, it's incredibly difficult. Because you have to be able to say, I don't have the capacity to give life to myself. I don't have the capacity to earn what God wants to give as a gift. I don't have the ability to meet God's righteous and holy standard. All I have to do is believe in Him in whom God has sent. That means that we die to ourselves and we live for Him. It's not complicated, but it is incredibly difficult. God sent Jesus, His one and only Son, so that if we believe in Him, then we would receive the gift of eternal life. Sixth point we see here is the crowd just won't believe. Verse 30. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They understand what he is saying in regards to the not being able to work for your eternal life. So they're saying now, You need to show us some kind of a miracle. You need to show some other sign to us so that we can believe you. Because right now we can't believe you. Now remember, John doesn't summarize all that Jesus has done leading up to the feeding of the 5,000 at six month period where he healed many, many different people. And these people, by and large, knew of this and had seen this. But he mentions this in in chapter 6, verse 2, when he says, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So they have seen... Many, many miracles. They have just received this miraculous meal at the hands of the Savior that just continued to break bread and distribute fish. But they're still not convinced that Jesus has been sent by God and that what He says has the authority of God Himself. It isn't enough. They simply will not believe in Him. And what this does is it vividly illustrates the hardness of man's heart and the inability to produce faith on your own. These people are going to continue to see miracle after miracle after miracle and they're just not going to believe because they cannot produce faith in themselves. We read in 1 Corinthians 2.14 A natural man does not accept the things "...of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to Him, and He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised." What Jesus is saying is spiritual truth. And He's speaking to unbelievers who are very, very religious, and they have to have faith in what Jesus is saying, and they don't possess it, and they cannot produce it on their own. We would read in Romans chapter 6, verse 7, "...because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. So the mindset on the flesh is the mind of the unbeliever. Hostile towards God, not able to even understand, has no interest in trying to understand the things of God. It is not until we are born again when all people are spiritually Dead and hostile to God. Until we're born again, all people are spiritually dead and hostile to God. It is not until He opens our eyes and enables us to have faith that we possess any faith. The people asked for an additional sign Not because the miraculous feeding was insufficiently revealing of who He was. They asked because they didn't like what Jesus was saying. And their demand for another sign was just another way of putting Him off. We saw what you did. We have to acknowledge that there's something going on here that we can't explain and we've never seen anything like it before, but we don't like what you're telling us about this eternal life thing. And so we're going to reject what you say until you continue to show us more and more and more signs. Well, the problem is, there's just not enough signs that Jesus can show them. They are not going to believe. Jesus had called on them to change their attitude since they did not want to do that they sought to justify their unbelief. This is what happens in our world today. People spend their entire lives in a world that displays the glory of God. They receive testimonies from Christians whose lives have been changed by God. They read the truth of the Bible and all of that is sufficient to persuade them to have faith. Yet, they reject The gospel, time and time again, because they don't like what it says. They explain now exactly what it is they want from this Messiah, this person claiming to be the Son of God. So they explain what it is they expect. Number seven here. This comes out of verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So the mass feeding that they enjoyed the day before was to continue just like the manna from heaven continued for the 40-year wandering in the wilderness when Israel had disobeyed and didn't enter into the promised land as God has instructed. What they are saying, in effect, is this. We want you to feed us every day for the next 40 years, and then maybe we'll believe that you actually are who you say you are. This was the messianic expectation of the Jew of that day, that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to feed them and take care of them and relieve them from the yoke of Roman oppressors and restore Israel back to its glory days. This is what they wanted. This is what they expected. And so the bread, which they did not eat, the manna from heaven, that came out of heaven, the question is for them, where did the bread come from that you yourselves just ate? Where did that come from? It came from the hands of the true bread of life, and that is Jesus Himself. They have little regard for their spiritual need, which is why they cannot accept what Jesus is saying. They want someone to come and feed them day after day after day after day, and maybe then we might believe what it is you are telling us. Now, number eight, this is why they are wrong. This is why their expectation for this political ruler is wrong. The four misconceptions that they have about the provision of the manna that they are claiming to be the standard for their belief in what Jesus is saying. Now, remember, going back to John 6, 14, there is this parallel between Jesus and Moses that accompanied the feeding of the 5,000. When they saw him do what he did, they said in verse 14, is this not the prophet that Moses spoke about? So they had this idea that what they were seeing was perhaps the fulfillment of, of the promised prophet that Moses spoke of. So there is this parallel that takes place between Moses and Jesus. Moses is a type of Jesus. He foreshadows what the Messiah is going to come to do. It was also near the Passover feast and there is this idea of the unleavened bread and the feeding of the 5,000. There is this Exodus out of Egypt and there is this crossing of the the Red Sea and the crossing of the Sea of Galilee on storm and the deliverance that is accompanied with that. The people have a love for Moses. They have a commitment to his writings, the Torah. And he is in the back of their minds. He is the frame of reference that they have on what it is they're saying. And Jesus knows exactly what they mean. And this is what he's going to do. He's going to show them Four misconceptions they have about the manna from heaven. Verse 32a, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, here it is again, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. Moses isn't the one that gave you that bread out of heaven. It was God. God is the one that gave you the bread out of heaven. Moses was simply the messenger who relayed what the Father said to him. God was going to provide a daily portion of manna for them to eat as long as they were going to be in the wilderness. In their minds, Moses was the one who gave the fathers the manna from heaven. Moses was the agent that God was working through and he simply relayed the message on to the people. By referencing... This provision of manna, they are saying, if you want us to believe you, then you need to feed us, just like the fathers were fed with the manna out of heaven in the wilderness. Manna was a temporary physical food that satisfied their physical need, and manna gave to the people physical life. That's the first misconception about where the manna actually came from. Number B, manna was not the true bread. Second half of verse 32, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. So Jesus says that God gave you the bread out of heaven, the manna. Now he is giving you the true bread out of heaven, and that is meat. That is what he is saying. True here means genuine or real. Jesus is the true bread, the genuine bread that comes out of heaven. The manna was a foreshadowing of what God was going to provide in the future. And this is one of the reasons why they had this misconception about the manna. While the manna was real and while it was supplied by God from heaven, it was not the true bread from heaven. The true bread from heaven is what God is now giving to them. Notice that this is stated by Jesus in the present tense and in the way it's phrased in the Greek language, it's a present act of meaning God is continuing to give in the future tense. The Father who gives the true bread... And is giving the true bread, will continue to give the true bread out of heaven, and that is Jesus, his son. So the manna was not the true bread. Letter C true bread gives eternal life. This is an important distinction. The physical bread that we eat is temporary, it helps to nourish us physically. But the true bread nourishes us spiritually, and it leads to eternal life. Verse 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. So this true bread of God will give spiritual life to those who eat of it. The manna couldn't do that. The manna that God provided was only good for one day. With the exception of the day before the Sabbath, they'd go out and collect the second day. Remember what they did? They got tired of the gathering, so they went and gathered as much as they could. And the next day, what happened? It was all spoiled. Isn't that right? The manna, which is physical food, is temporary, does not give life, and will perish, is a contrast to the true bread that gives spiritual life, which will never perish, and it gives eternal life. And this is what Jesus is trying to emphasize to them, is their need for true bread, which will lead to eternal life. Letter D, the fourth misconception, is the true bread is for the world. It gives life to the world, where the manna was selectively provided for the nation of Israel in the wilderness, this true bread is for all the world, regardless of racial background, ethnicity, or nationality. To whomever will believe, God will give the gift of eternal life. What a great promise that is. What a great truth for us who are not Jewish And our Gentiles, if you remember back to our study in Ephesians, otherwise, if we were not grafted into the covenant, we would have no hope. Now the last last point we're going to look at, number nine, is this, the people just want to be fed. They double down on their expectation of getting daily food and they say in verse 34, Lord, always give us this bread. Just like the woman at the well who wanted physical water To relieve her of the daily chore of going to get water, these people want bread to relieve them from the daily need and preparation that is required to feed themselves physically. Their desire was purely physical because they were disinterested in the spiritual realities. They they were thinking manna from heaven 2.0. God's going to do this again. God is going to rain heaven down on us. We're not going to have to work for food anymore. This guy is going to provide it. And if he provides it to the way that we expect, then maybe, maybe we will believe in him. From the very beginning of this discourse, Jesus is challenging their priority on the material, physical nature of life to the neglect of the spiritual need that they and we all have in common. Their continuing desire to use Jesus for their physical need is evident from this demand that they're making, this expectation of this daily provision of food. It identifies how clearly superficial their interest in Jesus actually is. And this will be exposed in great, with great clarity when we get to the end of chapter 6. You know, it's really not that uncommon today for people to have a superficial interest in Jesus. I've said this before. I'll say it again. I had a pastor who used to say, my name is Jimmy and I want all you can give me. And that's how many people approach God. They approach God with their hands out, their neck stiff, their heart hard, expecting a blessing from God because in their minds they're entitled because they've lived a religious life but that life is devoid of a true relationship with God. You know, when we have a proper understanding of who God is, that He is holy and righteous and gracious, powerful and splendid in every way, we see ourselves through the lens of who God really is. We can't come to Him but one way, and that is humbly, hopeful, that God will bless. No feelings of entitlement. No idea of worth or deserve a blessing from God. We just simply come with our hearts bowed before Him, thankful that He loves us. That He opened up our eyes and allowed us to have faith to believe in Him. Look at the blessings that you and I enjoy in our lives absolutely every day are simply At the hands of a generous God, not fulfilling the rightful entitlement of his children. How do you approach God? Do you approach him with your hands out, trying to get all you can from him? Or do you approach him with your head bowed, seeking his face to know him in relationship As we look in the remaining parts of this chapter at the superficiality of these religious unbelievers, we need to be mindful that we don't duplicate that kind of lifestyle in ourselves and just expecting God to bless because we're His children. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we pray that you would deepen our understanding of what it is you've done for us. And we can quote the verses and we can speak the truth. But when we really wrestle with the reality of who you are and what, you, what you've done for us, we should be broken before you. Crying out with thanksgiving in our hearts for your compassion and your mercy. wiping away our tears, thanking You for Your generous blessing and provision. And God, as we encounter You in that way, would You make us aware of the people around us who don't know that, who don't enjoy that, who aren't in relationship with You? This gift of eternal life is not for us just to hoard, but it is for us to share and tell to others praying that you will open their eyes and enable them to understand and have faith. Father, forgive us for using you for your blessing. Would you burden our hearts to know you more truthfully in our spirits as we commune with a holy and a righteous and a gracious God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?